Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 13, Issue Number 17, which corresponds with the week of April 10, 2023. This week, we're going to discuss literature review. In Section 2, we're going to look at antibiotics and pneumonia. In Section 3, we're going to discuss snakes. Free thoughts this week, you are enough. It's that simple. The podcast that's associated with this newsletter is number 43 with Dr. Subinoy Doss. We discuss sinus disease. Very important conversation about all of the reasons why we have sinus problems and sinus infections and antibiotic use and all of the above. Song of the Week, My Immortal by Evanescence. The live version is one of my favorites. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to listen to that song. Okay. Number one, literature review. Autism is linked to heart disease. From JAMA Pediatrics, we see, quote, in this systemic review and meta-analysis of 34 studies that included 276,000 participants with autism and 7,700,000 participants without autism, individuals with autism at a higher associated risk of developing diabetes, dyslipidemia, and heart disease, but not hypertension or stroke. The associated risks of developing diabetes and hypertension were even higher among children with autism, end quote. That came from Danasi Kara et al. 2023. The relative risk of de- developing type 2 diabetes mellitus was 2.5 and dyslipidemia was 1.6. Thus, individuals diagnosed with autism have a 1.6-fold increased risk of developing abnormal apolipoprotein B levels, leading to cardiovascular disease events over time. My take on this data is clear. Our population of children with autism spectrum disorder suffer from chronically poor quality diets, limited exercise, and emotional distress. These are all the upstream issues that are a trifecta for cardiovascular disease pathogenesis. This makes this data not surprising to me at all. My frustration remains that we know this data exists and We know it to be true, yet as a society, we do little to reduce these risk factors. Nutrition remains an afterthought in psychiatry, behavioral medicine, and society at large. Many, and frankly most parents that I meet, are reluctant to control the inputs of food at home, leading to the concerns over time. This is not judgment. This is just observation. Here's an aside. I just returned from a five-day men's retreat in Texas. We stayed at a ranch which hosts a center for adults with disabilities where they have work opportunities that are guided and safe. It was an absolutely beautiful place and a beautiful experience. And a moment to witness and be a part of, for me, was phenomenal. The problem was the food served to the residents and to us, and unfortunately me, was run based on a government and their guidelines for nourishment. It was a study in caloric volume with limited nutritional quality. There's plenty of calories, none of it good, none of it tasty. In the five days that I was there, I did not see a colorful vegetable once. Processed potatoes, wraps, rice, beans, sugar-based cereals were the main vegetables, primarily as starches. Fruit was daily as a banana, apple, or orange. Lots of meat as chicken, beef, and pork, and lots of cheese. One fish meal as tilapia and 15 meals. Sugar beverages offered at every meal. Black coffee for me, thank God. By the end of the 15-meal struggle, I had lived on fruit and meat. I was spiraling into nutritional hell. I could not wait to get to the Austin airport, where I promptly inhaled a large salad. My little pity party paled in comparison to the full-time resident's reality. The consequences of the federal and state guidelines for nourishment are obvious to witness. It is like getting hit in the head with a sledgehammer of truth. Most of the residential adults that were there were obese, which saddened my heart. 
There is a repeated pattern of nutritional dysfunction in schools, residential homes, and government-run entities. And we wonder why all health graphical trajectories are exponentially in the wrong direction, and especially in a group of humans who have disabilities already do not need to be challenged further with metabolic problems delivered directly by state-run food entities. Just not fair. I think these people deserve much better. And frankly, they were wonderful people. They deserve everything they can get. Number two, machine learning algorithms are going to help us diagnose autism spectrum disorders earlier. From a new study in JAMA, Dr. Engelhard and colleagues at Duke University were able to predict autism diagnosis with 90% accuracy by 30 days of age based on a host of criteria diagnostically. Each new diagnosis increased likelihood of positive ASD diagnosis. Gastrointestinal issues like milk protein intolerance, early visual concerns, needing physical therapy were some of the associated findings that were predictive. Another reason for me to walk away from vaccines as a significant cause of autism spectrum disorders is noted in this data. I keep falling back into the camp that ASD is starting in utero or even preconception. There's more to come here. Number three. Long-term gestational issues post-COVID are real and problematical. In a study by Dr. Shu, XU, in Nature Communications, we see, quote, we show that beyond the first 30 days of infection, people with COVID-19 exhibited increased risks and one-year burdens of incident gastrointestinal disorders spanning several disease categories, including motility disorders, acid reflux disorders, functional intestinal disorders, acute pancreatitis, hepatic, and biliary disease. The risks were evident in people who were not hospitalized during the acute phase of COVID-19 and increased in graded fashion across the severity spectrum of the acute phase of COVID-19. End quote. This is not surprising as much as important to be aware of. COVID affects the GI tract in acute disease. An increasing severity of disease leads to more dysbiosis of the microbiome, which is associated with all of these GI disorders. Number four. Celiac disease screening for first-degree relatives of a person with celiac disease is warranted from the study. Quote, the incidence of celiac disease in first-degree relatives of affected individuals is higher than in the general population, yet the clinical characteristics of this unique subset of patients has not been well described. Through a re retrospective review of the patients seen in a tertiary care pediatric celiac disease clinic, we identified 49 patients diagnosed with celiac disease following screening due to an affected first-degree relative. Although 51% of patients screened due to an affected first-degree relative were asymptomatic, their disease histology was severe as those screened for symptoms suggestive of celiac disease. So that's really important. Half the people screened with, for, from a first degree relative were asymptomatic, did not know they had disease, even though they had pathology once tested. These findings suggest current recommendations to screen all first degree relatives of patients with celiac disease regardless of clinical symptoms, end quote, from Gould et al. 2023. For me, this is a very important data set. For those with a family history of celiac disease, this is something you want to pay attention to. Uncontrolled celiac disease associated with cancer and autoimmunity long-term. Thus, screening and avoiding gluten-containing foods is of paramount importance. If you have a primary relative with celiac disease, get screened with an HLA, DQ2, and 8 genetic test, as well as celiac antibody profile. Number five, is strep throat or group A strep infection associated with chronic motor tic disorders? A recent study in neurology says no. This comes to us from SCHRAG, S-C-H-R-A-G, at all 2022. 
For me, this is a mystery, as I have seen many children develop rapid-onset motor tics, anxiety, and OCD-like behaviors that were absolutely responsive to antimicrobials that treat group A strep. The devil remains in the details of each case, likely, but clearly, as a class effect, GS is not a clear-cut cause of disease. Listen to the podcast with Dr. Nancy O'Hara for more on this topic. I think that, as always, the resolution of these issues is rooted in reducing total body inflammation. Number six, watching violent video content in early childhood associated with mental health struggles at age 12, according to new data from Dr. Pagani in the journal Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. Quote, for girls, preschool violent televiewing was associated with increase in emotional distress and decrease in classroom engagement academic achievement, and academic motivation at age 12 years. For boys, preschool violent televiewing was associated with increases in emotional distress, inattention, conduct disorders, and social withdrawal of behavior, as well as decrease in classroom engagement, academic achievement, and academic motivation at 12 years. End quote. These data points are consistent with what I see in clinic. This is not causative as so much as it is associative. The children that are allowed to watch violence early in childhood often are parented by adults that are not emotionally grounded and not protective of the child's mind at the first place. These children are left without boundaries, leading to emotional fear and distress. Children need and actually require boundaries for a sense of safety in the first decade of life. The emergence of streaming services provide real-time graphical violence at children's fingertips is a massive risk to our entire society. The simple answer is to keep children away from screens throughout the first decade of life and when they do watch, be present to keep the content safe and structured. Number seven, in another study by Dr. Bagani in the same journal, we see the directed correlation with physical activity and mental health in children, especially boys. Quote, we identified three emotional distress trajectories, low, increasing, and declining. Boys who never participated in sport at age five years were more likely to be in the increasing emotional distress trajectories compared with boys who participate in any sporting activity. Furthermore, boys in the low emotional distress category demonstrated better physical activity outcomes at age 12 years. These results exclusively for boys are above and beyond pre-existing individual family factors. Harbeck et al. 2022, end quote. Another reason to promote physical activity all ages, folks. This is just a no-brainer. Physical activity and nutrition, key one and key two for long-term health and behavioral outcomes of benefit. Number eight, from Dr. Bright in PLOS One, quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected schooling worldwide. In many places, schools closed for weeks or months, only part of the student body could be educated at any one time, or students were taught online. Previous research discloses the relevance of schooling for the development of cognitive abilities. We, therefore, compared the intelligence test performance of 424 German secondary school students in grades 7 to 9. 42% of them were female tested after first six months of the COVID-19 pandemic to the results of two highly comparable student samples in 2002 and 2012. The results revealed substantially and significantly lower intelligence test scores in the 2020 sample than in both 2002 and 2012. We retested the 2020 sample after another full school year of COVID-19 affecting schooling in 2021, we found mean level changes of typical magnitude with no signs of catching up to previous cohorts or further declines in cognitive performance. Perceived stress during the pandemic did not affect change in intelligence test results between the two measurements. End quote. Bright, B-R-E-I-T, et al., 2023. 
Okay, a litany of studies that this is now added to, showing the frustration outcome of lockdowns and school closures on children worldwide. This study is particularly daunting as Germany has a more robust primary school system than the United States. Therefore, the lack of catch-up portends even worse outcomes in the United States. It may be time to rethink year-long schooling until catch-up is demonstrated lest society slip further into trouble academically. Section 2. Is 5 or 10 days the best choice for community-acquired pneumonia to avoid antibiotic resistance, medicine side effects, and clinical outcome? From the study, quote, a total of 380 children made up the study population. The mean age is 35.7 months and 194 participants, 51% were male. Fewer than 10% of the children in either strategy had an ad inadequate clinical response. The short course strategy had a 69% probability of a more desirable radar outcome compared to the standard course strategy. A total of 171 children were included in the resistome analysis. The median number of antibiotic resistance genes per prokaryotic cell was significantly lower in the short course treatment, treatment, treatment strategy compared with the standard course strategy for total RGPC and beta-lactamase RGPC, end quote. Williams et al. 2021. For me, the key with the study is the clinical cure rate was identical in the treatment versus control arm. Thus, the need for more than five days of medicine would only apply to those individuals that are not completely better by day six. Most of the adverse antibiotic reactions occur on day eight, nine, or nine, making the short course therapy a major advantage to avoiding this issue. For parents, I highly encourage you to ask your provider for the length of therapy and why it's being chosen and what is the best option for you. Again, you have to discuss this with your provider. These are just the data points and my opinions. Section three. So this section is about snakes and you can read most of it in the newsletter. I'm going to skip just to the important part. Many snake bites are dry strikes without envenomation. When venom is introduced into the skin, the area will swell and become painful. Death is very rare with less than 10 mortal events year in the year countrywide in the United States. Most snakes are not aggressive. However, when you walk on trails, watch for relaxing snakes. Stay out of tall grass where they are possible to be questing or hanging and wear boots when hiking. If one does get bitten, here are some actions to do. One, remain calm. Leave the area where the snake resides and have someone call 911 or call poison control. Do not try and capture the snake. The less the victim moves, the less likely the venom will spread throughout the body and cause more damage. Have the victim lie down with the affected limb at the level of the heart. Keep the limb immobilized. Remove any rings, bracelets, boots, or other restricting items from the bitten extremity immediately as this area will swell. Wash the bite with soap and water. Actions not to do. One, do not cut the bite. The additional tissue damage may actually increase the diffusion of the toxins throughout the body and cause an infection. Do not apply a tourniquet. Such action can result in loss of limb. Number three, never try to suck the venom out by your mouth. You can try a suction cup in a snake bite kit if it doesn't delay other needed treatment. Suctioning seldom provides any added benefit. Number four, do not apply cold or ice packs. Recent studies indicate that applying cold or ice makes the injury much worse. All this being said, snakes are part of our natural balance in our ecosystem. Moke snakes are useful for controlling rodent populations. Try not to kill them out of fear and just walk away. In North Carolina, where we live in the central Piedmont, the only real poisonous snake is the copperhead, 
there are diamondbacks in the mountains as well as copperheads. And then the east, there's diamondback rattlesnakes as well as a coral snake and a cottonmouth snake. But that's just North Carolina. Know your local environment. Get online. Read the newspapers or get onto a website that talks about what you are looking for in your local region. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Again, give My Immortal by Evanescence a listen, the live version. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to treat a health issue. The newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.